Hello, people. You are listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Soleho. How do you know they're people? They might be aliens. Hello, dogs out there and cats of the podcast world as well. Oh, cute. (laughs) (laughs) So if you're a human, a kitty cat, reptilian, on this show, we talk about food and what it all means by speaking with people in the Bay Area and beyond. We're writing and thinking about how what we eat shapes us and connects us. On this episode, we speak with Danny Lavery, the host of Slate's Dear Prudence Advice column and podcast. Writing about food is, I think it's it's sort of like a way of trying to, to deal with terror, and it's hard to write about terror. We also give you advice on your burning questions about food. Dear Spicy, how can people who love food get to write about it? Well, I guess it all depends, right? I'm so excited about that smoldering, sizzling questions. <laughs> Overcooked, overneeded. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All the bad stuff. But before that, here's the interview. So I was just on Danny's podcast where he talks about, you know, he gives advice to people who write in. And um, coincidentally, a bunch of the questions were about food. That that was a delight. We had really intense questions and I really, really enjoyed uh, getting to answer them together. You know, we got, I think, what was it? Two two questions about food, I think. At least, yeah. Yeah. Um, is that a frequent kind of flyer in your advice column? I think it it definitely is. It's It's a classic staple of advice columns for a reason. And then I think there has probably been an uptick since a lot of the stay-at-home um, shelter-in-place orders went out back in March because many, many, many more people are cooking from home way more often than they were a couple of months ago. And the dinner table seems to be a classic setting for melodrama. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree. I would absolutely agree. I would, I would not try to fight you on that one. So is that the place where, you know, there's so much, I think – emotional and sentimental value put on the dinner table? Like, is that how you see it as well? Or maybe not? Probably. And I think also, you know, if people have more than two members of their household, you know, (laughs) the more people you have, the more likely you are to sit at the table. Like when there's two of you, you're like, we could eat in bed just as easily. And then we're eating in bed and that's fantastic. But when you have like, you know, a family of six or something, it's it's not going to work out that way. All this dinner table talk had me thinking of, uh, you know, notable dinner table moments like in pop culture, movies, TV shows, that kind of thing. And it uh, being San Francisco specific on this podcast, it had me thinking of Inside Out. That's it. Go to your room. Now. Ah! Foot is down. The foot is down. Okay, so... um... Tell me, like, so they're having a fight at the dinner table or something? Yeah, I mean, the the daughter's, like, upset. She's, you know, she's a kid, man. Like, she's upset that they had to move there. She had a bad day at school. Um, the mom's trying to talk to her. The daughter's being, as most, like, teens and preteens are, just like, leave me alone. And then that fight results in, like, the parents being mad at each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like just, this battlefield. Yeah. I feel like that says a lot about a dinner table. Yeah, no, th- my other... My my favorite dinner um, scene in recent years is the one from Hereditary, <laughs> oh my God. which is a movie about demons. And uh, there's a confrontation at the dinner table with the, the family in the movie. And, um, you know, they've been sort of sleepwalking through life because of a tragedy that happens. And then the grief just becomes it just explodes 
over dinner. Um, and I love it. And it's a precursor to all the like horrific stuff that happens afterwards. But it's just like, wow, yes, this is the place where things happen. Just fucking say it. Don't you swear at me, you little shit. Don't you ever raise your voice at me. I am your mother. I do love how I'm like... This clip of Inside Out, this bright colored, you know, <laughs> Pixar movie, and you're like, hereditary. Oh, yeah. A lot of heads getting chopped off in that one. <laughs> and that's why people listen to this podcast. Right. In addition to being an advice columnist, I think that you are a fantastic part-time food writer. I love everything you have to say about food. And you're not like a traditional one. You don't write about recipes necessarily or restaurant reviews, but other things. I think part of that is because when I do food writing, it's almost always on my newsletter. So I never have to pitch it. Um, (laughs) And so it's always just like, what do I feel like writing about food right now? Um, Which is like a couple of times a year. And... um, I think sometimes I mostly just want to write about like certain emotional states or fixations that I can launch myself into around food. Like, you know, I had this kind of like almost manic sort of like riff on how I feel when I think about a bean. (laughs) How do you feel when you think about a bean, Danny? I feel like a very simple farmer in the south of France who's just like, (laughs) please, I have my one hat and my very simple life and I eat my one bean. And it's so good for me. And, you know, you in the big glimmering cities with your many things and your sweetmeats, you have no bean. But I am a simple man of the soil. Please, je suis my campans. I don't know how to say things with the French accent. I think that was Italian. You are like the, the, the image of the two kind of like um, dirt speckled hands holding like a, two palmfuls of dried beans. Yeah. And that, that whole like fantasy of like uh, simplicity and Frenchness that like I can get as swept up into just as easily as the next person. <laughs> yeah. No, the thing I really love about your writing too is you're very much fixated on the the image of food and the rhetoric of food. You know, the things that we say about it and the things we associate with it, um, how we talk about it more so than even like the object itself, you know? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the states that we get ourselves into around food are fascinating. Yeah. Oh my gosh! Like your 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 whole thing on your newsletter, you ran a story, or I don't know. Like, I love your like kind of listy essays, and this one was about what we say about beans. Also on the bean oh, track. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a year later. <laughs> it was almost a year to the day, actually. Like once a year, I read about beans. <laughs> you got to fill your quota somehow. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I think the one that you're referring to is the possibly explicable things people sometimes say about cooking beans. So I started with like eight or nine different forms of hedging as well. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's so, um, just, I think food is one site, especially as someone who has to write about it constantly, right? Where it's so easy to get banal and so easy to just like fall into tropes because, you know, it's so relatable. It's a it's a commonality. It's like the jumping off point for so many other conversations. And and yet, like, there's so many interesting conventions that we just touch on because there's not too many deep things you can say about beans, I think. And I think, too, uh, when food becomes – a particular type of food becomes 
newly trendy or like written about in a way that it hasn't previously or written about by types of people or in types of outlets that it wasn't being written about, you know, a month or two months earlier, there, there, there also then becomes this kind of like conversation about the conversation of like, I have to acknowledge the things other people are saying about beans now. Yes. If if that makes sense. So there's the whole sort of like, one of the things that I just love is like anything that I read about beans will start with some sort of gesture towards the soaking debate. And it's like, I don't think it's actually (laughs) this huge controversy or debate, but again, like because you have to kind of like drum up some sort of like intensity or topical peg. There's like, you know, stop worrying about soaking beans. You idiots. Like, you're you're wasting your life soaking the beans. Don't be precious. Um, you know, look, these are beans. You know, when you put water on them, they turn from stones to pillow. Like, just relax. Um, and then there can also be the kind of like, um, you know, this is how people try to make cooking beans seem too difficult for the regular cook. It's quick and easy. Don't let anyone tell you difference. And then someone else is like, no, 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 you're slacking. Like, don't, don't be fooled. The soaking is important. It's just like... I don't know. There's there's so much that's wrapped up in that. And I love the conversation before the conversation. It's kind of like, I feel like it was maybe seven or eight years ago that people started complaining about food bloggers writing long things before um, posting a recipe. Oh my God. Yes. And then like a couple of years ago, that had become so played out that it there was a sort of like, no, 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 I love reading that stuff. It's fine. It just takes 10 seconds to scroll past. If you don't like it, you know, it's free. You're not paying for it. And and such that, like, now people seem to, like, bring it back up sort of obsessively or, like, with the sense of we, we can't let this question die. I have to find a new angle on it. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I find that amazing. I find that amazing the way that conversations about the way people write about writing about food sort of spiral out of control with this back and forth and back and forth. Yes. It takes on a pattern, which is so, you know, when you're in it, it's really hard to see, but then you see it, it's like this Groundhog Day sort of thing, right? Where you're just like, wait, I've had I've had this conversation before. We've had this fight before. We've had this backlash before, you know? And it feels like it's like this illusion of progress, like a, like, um, like a dialectic that might be evolving, but it really is just sort of like spiraling into itself all the time. Yeah. And I think at least for me, when I've seen it or sometimes participated in it, there's sometimes this sense of, I don't know unless I had a lot of technical expertise that I'd be able to say something new about how to make beans. But I bet I could say something new about the way other people write about making beans if I, you know, wanted to give that a shot. And so I think especially in in food writing, um, there can sometimes be a fear that like if it's not topical or if I haven't added something new, why would anyone read this? And and some of that I think then is also just really connected to the precariousness of trying to make a living as a food writer, which I don't do. That's not a precariousness that I'm subject to, but I mean just in general, this kind of sense of how will I get the clicks, um, <laughs> which I don't hold any individual writer responsible for, obviously. But yeah, there's just this sense of like, I- I've got to I got to give him a hook. I got to get him in the door. <laughs> no, I mean, the hook is the symptom, right, of the, this underlying thing. And we all just have to do it because that's kind of what we're stuck in. Um, and like that, the, I think one of the lines in your bean essay is like, beans will fix everything. And to <laughs> me, <laughs> that brought to mind like all the coronavirus stories, right? Like beans are your coronavirus food or focaccia is your coronavirus food. You know, like everyone had yeah. to hit that SEO in the title. Yeah. yeah. 
and you could just yes. kind of you can just like weave any sort of straw into gold with with the right search terminology. Yeah, and I think also just like a very I'm sure a very real sense of like I'm also freaked out what's a food that I can associate with both kind of fussiness but that's also simple and can remind me of general ideas about like hardiness, authenticity, earthiness, anything that feels grounding. So so that part of it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and then I think, yeah, just that next thing of like, I think we might be asking and expecting too much of beans. I feel like, okay, I'm glad that Danny brought this up because I think we keep having this conversation. I don't know if it's me. I see it all the time on social media. I think because I follow a lot of food writers who get really angry about this all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, But someone will say like, why do I have to read a whole essay before getting to the recipe? I just want to know how to make cookies. I don't want to hear about your grandma. (laughs) Oh, man. I, I feel like that's an integral part of the recipe now. But also, I'm never, I'm never surprised anymore about complaints that come in about recipes. Because I remember when we, uh, when I first started here at the Chronicle, and even like before, I would hear food sections um, talk about recipe uh, creation and how specific they had to be. Someone would write in a letter, you know, before they were emailing. And be like, you didn't specifically tell me not to put my hand directly into the flame. And now I've burned myself <laughs> and I'm really upset about this. So I think any conversation about like, you know, published recipes, I- I'm not surprised anymore. There's also that whole debate over, um, you know, and I think Bon Appetit is going through this right now where they're doing a sort of uh, auditing of their recipe backlog. Um, but you want context, right? I think right. for people like us, we're, we're trying to bring context back to food and food writing. You know, it's always been there, but like just to really consciously do it. And one way to do it is with an essay at the top or head notes that talk about creation, about, you know, who we can credit this to and the whole process of ownership and credit. And that's the function. I think that's really important to maintain. Yeah. And if recipes are easily accessible now where you can go to literally any website that um, that you want just about and find how to make something, if you want to feel attached to a recipe, like that essay helps accomplish that. Like it gives you an attachment to that writer and might maybe even a deeper attachment to that recipe. Um, I think those things are needed now more than ever. Like I want to see someone add some personality to their recipe. Yeah. And you know, like there are plenty of places where you can get recipes that don't have a lot of head notes, right? You can buy a cookbook. You yeah. can go to allrecipes.com, which there I use go. a lot. I do that too. Yeah. Yep. You know, and you have lots of, you know, like Susan in the comments saying, hey, I instead of milk, I used, you know, gravy. And right. it was fine. <laughs> and you're like, okay, right. cool. Like right. it's, it, it's a landscape of so many wonders and excitements. <laughs> Instead of using all those ingredients, I used none of them. And it turned out pretty good. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I love the comment section of recipes, though. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's so wild sometimes. It's such a great place. But I'm just going back. I'm dead serious. Like, it it was definitely a thing. I've always been afraid, like, to be a person who would do recipes because I don't think I'm um, (laughs) – I don't pay close enough attention to be like, I'm going to assume – that you know not to, you know, stick your spatula into the blender while it's on kind of thing. But you do have to say these things, like, in recipes. It's just, I don't know, it's too much pressure. Too much pressure for me to worry about your well-being and all this. I think you've had an upbringing of color, and that's why. Ah, there's the answer. (laughs) 
on our next podcast, we un- <laughs> we dive into all of that. We talk about our moms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard, I think. Like, writing about food is, I think it's it's sort of like a way of trying to to deal with terror and... <laughs> And it's hard to write about terror, I think. <laughs> Wait, tell me more about this. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess what I'll say is, like, I, I think it feels like w- when it comes to both, like, workers' rights and the future and climate change, everything about, like, the systems that we have in our foodways is terrifying. Like, everything about factory farming is terrifying. And anybody who tries to think about it for more than a minute, I think often runs into just this absolute sense of like terror like oh my god we've created hell on earth and i don't know how to think about that like there's just these massive pig shit lagoons spreading across the country and these horrifying slaughterhouses where like people are forced to work under the most inhumane of conditions and it's also what's making the arctic turn 100 degrees and also there's this disease out there that like no one seems invested in actually protecting us from it's terrifying. It's genuinely, genuinely terrifying. And so then when you look to something like beans to address it, it's sort of like, okay, beans, what I need from you is to like usher in a slightly pastoral, but also slightly urbanized communist paradise future (laughs) where there's ice at the poles and there's like maybe like 10 pigs die a day, but not like a million, you know, like a a number I can wrap my head around. And they're all killed by like a farmer named Jeff. And he thinks about it very seriously. And there's no pig shit lagoons. And we all eat at a big, long, low table like red wall mice. And like people make money for pulling up radishes and uh, things work. And that's what I need from these beans today. And, um, I don't think beans can do all that. I don't think they can hold all that intensity. (laughs) I have no idea if any of that made sense. No, it makes a lot of sense, actually, especially as a restaurant critic, you know, speaking as a restaurant critic with like acute anxiety and like sadness about everything. um, It is, you know, it's easy to think of food as a source of comfort. Um, I think that's like the narrative that we that we can kind of slide into. Right. Um, Right. And there's there's kind of a limit to that comfort. I think there is so much out there, like you're saying, that is terrifying um, that, yeah, like a, a nice pot of beans just can't do. And I think to pretend that, and it is, I think a lot of it is pretend, at least for me personally, um, whenever I say that something is comforting, it's kind of an affectation because nothing is truly comforting in this world. <laughs> or it's comforting in a way that kind of actually keeps the fear going because it's like okay well i feel good now for half an hour right the problem is that like the pig shit lagoons down in georgia they persist problem is the arctic so it's like this made me feel better but now i feel guilty about feeling better because i shouldn't feel better i should stay like hungry and freaked out so that i can like help change things but where would i start with changing things that feels too big but i can eat a bean but now i feel good and that's wrong you're listening to the extra spicy podcast We'll be right back after the break. I'm Soleil Hell, and I'm back with Daniel Lavery from the Dear Prudence podcast. So since I don't want to take up too much more of your time, I did want to ask one last question, which is about potatoes. Yes. You had this tweet that I think I have bookmarked, and I look at it 
sometimes. Like I look at a little robin's egg that's preserved, like you know, in a uh-huh. curio cabinet. Um, about dessert potato, your restaurant idea. <laughs> <laughs> that was the best dumb idea I've I think ever so had. too. Uh, how do you feel about dessert yeah. potato now in retrospect? This idea where it's like it's like pink berry except it's potatoes instead of frozen yogurt. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, it sounds absolutely repulsive, <laughs> but it also sounds like just the kind of like weird, kind of dumb, kind of gross, maybe weirdly appetizing if you're like the right kind of high idea that feels like in this country should have taken off, you know, like just some weird restaurant where you go in and they're like, here's a baked potato and like an infinite number of dessert <laughs> toppings you can put on it. We'll just be like, yeah, all right. I'd spend $8 <laughs> on that. Would, if this restaurant existed. Um, would you, would you get a dessert potato every day? I mean, I would be the manager and proprietor, right? Of dessert potato. So, um, I think I'd have to. (laughs) You have to taste the goods, right? Um, you have to taste the goods. You have to. Yeah, I would absolutely like, I would do it. I would be very sick of it. I would hate of it. Okay. Yeah. I just looked it up myself. That's disgusting. (laughs) Yeah. I love it. I love it. And I was like, yeah. Million dollars on my first day. Absolutely. I think it was very over the top and ridiculous. And um, I'm so glad it doesn't exist. <laughs> I mean, even if it doesn't exist. Okay. What would be, what's the dessert potato that you're craving right now? If, if you had the option. Mm. I, I would want to go for something that would just be weird. That just like, I'm going Nutella, uh, whipped cream, uh, cherry preserves. On what potato base? Oh, just a regular white baked potato. Nice. Yeah. I'm going full weird. <laughs> I think I would love like a puree of potato done up kind of like soft serve. Um, mm-hmm. And then I think sprinkles and ooh, maybe creme anglaise. Well, yeah. I mean, you say that and I'm kind of back on board <laughs> with the idea. And I'm like, you know what? This could work. It would also, it'd be so inconvenient. Like it would almost be the kind of thing that you wouldn't need a container. Like you, you think like, oh, I could kind of walk around carrying the baked potato, but that wouldn't work. It would be way too hot and, and the skin would start to fall apart when you used a fork. So you would, you would need like a dumb little paper container and then like a little fork and knife and oh, everything about it. So inconvenient. No, really you know, like I'm it. imagining someone carrying like a bunch of baked potatoes in like one of those baby slings that you wear on your chest. Ooh, and it's like okay. warming, yeah. but a little lumpy, but like it would conform to your body as you walk. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I'm back on board. Let's do that. That would be like the going. buffet option. Yes. <laughs> Dessert potato buffet. I am in. <laughs> oh, man. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you, Danny. As always, as always, my friend, I, I send all of my potato feelings to you. So how does this restaurant concept sound to you? How does it sound to me? It yeah. sounds disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds terrible. I, I would I, I don't want a potato version of Pinkberry. I I love potatoes, you know, just as much as the next person, but no. Just so we are all on the same page. Here is the tweet, which was sent out on December 10th, 2019. Million dollar restaurant idea, dot, dot, dot. Dessert potato. 
Oh, my God. You pick your base potato, white or sweet. We crack it steamy open. <laughs> then you pick your base fat, tahini, Nutella, whatever, toppings, etc. $10 a potato, million dollars on my first day. <laughs> and that got uh, like 2,000 faves on Twitter because people <laughs> love it. Um, <laughs> that just, everything about that is just so wrong. It's pretty cursed. Yeah. You can never unhear dessert potato. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. But like, you know, imagine like a Chipotle-esque line or an assembly line where like they're just passing the potato down down the cutting board and they're like layering it with like schmutz and sprinkles and candy. I don't know if I could be. I don't know if I'd be able to unhear uh, people in line saying what their best, what the best potato mashup is. Like imagine people being like, "Nah, man, you got to get the chocolate sauce and then add peanuts to your whipped potatoes." I would jump out of a window. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think there's something really lovely about these really chaotic restaurant ideas because we've seen them all. Yeah. Being food writers, we have. So that leads me to wonder, because honestly, Danny's idea is great. It's just a wonderful idea. If you had to create an idea like that or your own million-dollar restaurant idea, what would it be? Well, you know, I I am always thinking about— this one onion headline. And like, I know, I know remembering onion headlines is not a personality. <laughs> I understand. Um, but this one is Arby's now charging $2.99 to let customers go behind counter, grab handfuls of roast beef. <laughs> and like, that is amazing. That's a pre COVID 19 restaurant concept that I am really just in love with. I think that's just super great. So people would, um, People would pay money to be able to go into the restaurant, just pull roast beef by the hand from uh, behind the counter. Yeah, however much beef you can stuff in your pockets. And (laughs) in the article, they talk about an addendum where you can get the cheesy upgrade, where you can like scoop handfuls of cheese from a trough to accompany your beef. Uh, There's someone at the door who insults you the whole time. Get in there and get it, piggy. Yes. I just think that would be amazing. Um, that is so gross. There's something about, or, 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 you know, when I was when I was a line cook, my concept that I would carry in my head was like food in a bucket. I just wanted like a place where you just load up your bucket. Yeah. You take your bucket and that's it. I mean, does the anything special about the bucket? Does it attach to your neck to where you just <laughs> crane your neck and eat out of the bucket? No, no. I mean, like slop, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you could choose your slop base. It could be rice porridge. It could be oatmeal. It could mm. be groats or grits. Okay. Um, and then you get stuff on it. Okay. It's a bucket. The restaurant is just called Bucket. I'd go. I'd be, be interested. Like, eh, Bucket. Yeah. Yeah, Bucket. My health, Bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Nuggety Bucket. <laughs> That's a good one. Um, All right. Oh, man. Um, What do you got? I I mean, I feel like mine, I would try to make as much money as as quickly as possible. So I would have, I wouldn't be in it for the love. Too practical. So I'm going to open a restaurant and just cut out food costs, like actual food. Not going to have actual food there. Our restaurant would be called Condiment House. And you have to bring your own food. (laughs) 
your own food. And you would just go through and there would be like, uh, you know, containers of like condiments, like Thai chili sauce right next to like sweet baby Ray's barbecue sauce right next to like gluten-free chipotle mustard and you take your own food, put it on there, and I charge you for the condiments. What if it's like a car wash where you put it on a conveyor belt and there's just like these hoses that come down from the ceiling like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That would be amazing. Yeah. See, but I'm cheap, though. I feel like that would take extra equipment. So I feel like the the cheapest way to do this would probably be like the, uh, you know, like the buffet, like heating trays. Just have condiments in it. By the way, all your condiments are warm, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So who's coming on down to condiment house? That's cursed. (laughs) So fittingly, we are transitioning to our own advice segment on the show. It's called Dear Spicy, and we are going to be answering questions from listeners and readers, um, people who just are confused and don't know where they are. So (laughs) (laughs) Justin, do you want to take the first question? Yeah. All right. Let's see. Dear Spicy, my flatmates all hate turnips, but I really like them. We made them in what I thought was a foolproof way, pan-roasted with a sweet caramelized miso sauce, and they were still too bitter. Any ideas to turn my flatmates to turnips, or is it a lost cause? Do you like turnips? I mean, I'm fine with turnips. So, okay, a few things. Um, Generally speaking... Spring-planted turnips are a little bit more bitter than summer-planted turnips. Interesting. Because as the weather gets colder, um, the the kind of the stuff, right, in the turnips, like, they become sweeter. Mm. Because, you know, it gets chillier. They want to, like, kind of um, just develop more. I'm not articulating this well. But as it gets colder, they just get sweeter. Oh, Science. Neat. You hear this about cabbages, too. Um, Mm. Frosty cabbages are sweeter as well. So that might be one problem is like, how old are these turnips? Ah, (laughs) When did you try to eat them? Also, um, this reminds me of a chapter in the American Girl series. (laughs) Okay. Right. So Molly, she's the World War II American girl. Mm -hmm. She really doesn't like turnips. Mm -hmm. And... um, her mom purees turnips and mixes them with butter, a little bit of sugar, and cinnamon, and mm-hmm. then she eats them. Oh, interesting. But, like, really, in my experience, if you slow cook them, they'll develop more sweetness and the bitterness will kind of, like, slowly get out. Um, alternately, I think some vinegar helps. Um, but really, like, it, generally when I cook turnips, I peel them, I cut them into bite-sized pieces, and I simmer them in water with a little bit of butter and white wine for a while until they get really tender. And then I let the water kind of evaporate out, and then the butter caramelizes the turnips in the pan. And that usually works. Simple enough. Yeah, it's easy. Yeah. You maybe actually want turnips just now, and I've never thought I would say that. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Um, I'm sure the turnip lobby is happy about that. You working for Big Turnip? (laughs) (laughs) All right. You want to read one? Yes. Dear Spicy, how can people who love food get to write about it? Simple enough. Well, I guess it all depends, right? Are you trying to do this to 
you know, build a career out of it or do you just want to write? Um, you know, with the Internet, you can write anywhere, like start your own blog if you want to or work with friends that have blogs or post on social media. Like don't feel like just because it doesn't fall under like a San Francisco Chronicle banner or a New York Times banner that it's not valuable, you know, find a place to to put it. Don't let that hold you back. Or, I mean, what do you think, Sola? Well, you know, when I started food writing, I was doing it for an online publication called Heavy Table, and they paid me 20 bucks a pop mm-hmm, for stories. Mm-hmm. And that was how I started. Um, I was lucky enough to also, well, lucky, right? I was I was also working as a line cook at the time. Mm-hmm. So that was actually what was paying the rent. And then this other thing was just a thing that I did to keep my wits sharp and, you know, my computer hot. So... There was that. And then I think nowadays, too, there's so many means that you could that you could use to put your voice out there, like newsletters. I really yeah, I subscribe yeah. to so many of them. Um, Alicia Kennedy's newsletter about food media, um, Paula Forbes's newsletter about cookbook news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it costs nothing yeah. to start. You just have to find people to get on it. But over time, that's what will happen if you just keep plucking away. That's it. I mean, I think that's the biggest advice is just to keep at it, right? And also, look, we are uh, – I feel like publications are constantly trying to expand the the vault of voices that they have in their coverage. And if you have unique stories to tell and want to do that writing, you can go to a lot of places right now. You can definitely come to us. We would appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, I'm always available as a resource for advice or I love reading pitches too, um, because pitching is very fun for me, almost to my detriment, because then I ended up having to do so many stories that I pitched, you know, (laughs) it's like that. It's like, yeah, it's terrible. Now I'm responsible for the story. Mm. But, you know, if you ever have a pitch that you want to have looked at, just send it to me. I will read it. So I like this question. I'm just going to preface this by saying that um, I love any question about eating things that don't exist. So, right, dear Spicy, if you could eat any Disney character, who would you eat? How would you prepare it and why? I really like how the pronouns change, too, throughout this, right? It's like, who, um, it, it's just like, okay, um, <laughs> what is? what are we actually talking about? There are a lot of delicious ones, delicious animal sidekicks. There's also delicious vegetable sidekicks, you know. Um, like Grandma Willow is technically like a vegetable, right, from Pocahontas. Um, then, of course, the raccoon from Pocahontas. That is a commonly eaten creature in the U.S. Sebastian, the crab. Yeah. Flounder, the not flounder, because he's got two eyes on different sides of his face. I mean, you could— also eat Mushu from Mulan if oh, you yeah, wanted to. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know? He's also named after food. The, Delicious. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So if we had to think of like, who would you eat? Let's just go ahead and get down to it. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, we don't have any like Disney creatures that are already technically a food item. Right. Um, without having to kill it first. I know. That's sad. I mean, the okay, the hen from Robin Hood is pretty juicy looking. Oh, interesting. I didn't even think about that one. She's like um, Maid Marian's attendant. Yeah. Yeah. She's, it's good. I mean, 
I'm going to give you a controversial uh, controversial one. I'd eat Winnie the Pooh. <gasps> no, he's he's not even a he's not even animal. Uh, he's a stuffed animal. Out of love, I would eat Winnie the Pooh because I like to imagine that. Um, I mean, he eats honey all the time. That has to, in some way, influence the way he tastes, right? I could catch him. He definitely is not going to outrun me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that. That's my um, maybe either, either Winnie the Pooh or maybe uh, maybe Donald Duck. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could fi- I could figure out how to how to do duck pretty easy. That is a funny point about Winnie the Pooh. He doesn't really run. He just like shambles along. Right. I mean, it would be so easy. <laughs> Oh, man. (laughs) Well, that's lovely. That's a great (laughs) spot. (laughs) Uh, Thanks again to Danny Lavery for being in conversation with me. You can read the transcript of my full interview with Danny at sfchronicle.com slash spicy. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you might have about food, life, and anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Extra Spicy is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Erica Carlos is the producer of the show. If you like the Extra Spicy podcast, subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find me, Soleho, on Twitter at H-O-O-L-E-I-L. And me, Justin Phillips, at Just Mr. Phillips. You can support Extra Spicy and great journalism by signing up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 